Tom Cruise wanted the truth. Jack Nicholson did not believe he could handle the truth. And 2,000 years before either actor gave those memorable lines, Pilate looked the truth in the face and asked him to explain what is truth, but then really didn't want the answer. Had Pilate waited 1,900 years, he could have picked up George Orwell's 1984 and witnessed the mockery of a world that attempts to destroy any foundation for knowing truth. In grabbing hold of the language and changing the meaning of basic words, the ministry of truth in Orwell's dystopian novel controls the mind of the people. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. We live in, a, live in a country and in a culture that will glower at you should you declare that a truth applies to all people to suggest a truth that the culture didn't give you is to them a sin. Oh, it's okay to have your personal truth. TV personality and scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson went so far as to see to you that you could even have your own personal truth that Jesus Christ is your Savior, as long as you don't try to apply that to everyone else. Be careful, he warned, about trying to push your personal truth on a Muslim. Every moment of every day, you assess truth. Does what you are seeing and what you are hearing correspond to reality? So that you can live and move and have your being without looking like a dope? We do not like to be deceived. Today we're going to begin a staggered sermon series. Jeremy hasn't stopped preaching through Kings, but on a quarterly basis, sometimes more, I'll have the opportunity to come up and preach. And I'm going to be preaching through John's shorter epistles. For those of you who like Robin Hood, you can call them the Little Johns. And saturating these biblical postcards you are going to see an emphasis on truth. How important is it that we know the truth and how important is it that we order our lives to the truth to understand John's intent and meaning? We're going to take some time here this morning and anchor on truth. Before we do that, let's take a moment and beg God to guard our hearts and minds, and to guard my lips. Father, as we come before you, as we shall see, we know truth because you are truth. And man's heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so we beg that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the power and truth of the word before us, that you would guard our hearts and minds that you would guard my lips, that your truth would be proclaimed. And even now, this morning, God, please, here we are, your people, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Pilate's question is not a bad question. What is truth? Now, if we take our cue from the world, it's not knowable. You can't know it. 
as I alluded to, you can have your personal truth, that's fine, but that's valid for you and not for me. Francis Schaeffer, 35 years ago, recognized this. He said, we should note this curious mark of our age, in the 70s, late 70s, we should note this curious mark of our age, the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. And yet we know somehow in our gut that this is patently absurd. There's got to be some kind of truth. We know when the sun is going to rise and when the sun is going to set. It's like science. I used to fly airplanes. Some of you do. Okay? Aeronautics. That's like science. Taking off and landing. Even morality in our gut, we know, man, some things, those are just wrong. So how can I be sure that there is a truth? Well, how do I know that I know? And this is something that in, in, true, in, in truth, for millennia, People have understood truth is that which corresponds to the reality around us. Merriam-Webster says essentially the same thing. Truth is the body of real things, events and facts. Or the property of being in accord with fact or reality. So we live in a cosmos based upon truth, based upon the truth of reality. But how can I know with certainty? You know, the matrix, ah. You know, how do I know that this isn't all just an illusion? Unless there is someone outside of the system who can tell us about the system, we can never fully come to understand and know the system. What do I mean by that? Think of rats in a maze. Very happy in the maze. Running around, loving life, and this is the world to them. This is reality. From time to time, they'll get up and look around, and they go, but this is their reality. Every now and then, there's kind of a guy who walks around and with a white coat and examines them, but this is reality to them, unless the guy in the coat can communicate to the rats that, sorry, you're just rats in a maze. There's a whole world outside of that. So you can understand how people, starting from themselves, as they look to this world, they go, I don't get it. What is truth? That's completely arbitrary and completely up to you. But we can know reality and truth. Because the God who created reality, the God who created the system, has revealed it and himself to us. Truth is vital because it is inherent in God's nature. God is truth. Jesus Christ himself declared that very thing on the night before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father except through me. David, in Psalm 119, verse 160, said, The entirety of your word is truth. On the wall, John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus declared that very thing. And it should be no surprise to know that Christ declares himself to be the truth. That the word is truth when Jesus Christ is the word. The word made flesh in John chapter 1 verse 1. Which is why also it should come as no surprise that Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, will set you free. We live under the sun. We live on this planet right now. And what has God given me in my being to know and assess truth? How can I comprehend the truth around me, the truth that he declares to me? Well, we have eight sensors, I would say. You've got your five senses out there, sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. You've got another sense. It's a vestibular sense. It's your sense of balance, your inner ear. And you have a mind for taking all of these inputs and putting them together and go, oh, that's level. I'm standing upright. I'm not sitting down. I can see out in front of me. But the eighth sensor God has given us is our spirit. Our spiritual well-being and our spiritual understanding. You guys all understand that our sensors can be messed up. I mean, if I take these off, no telling where the sermon's going to go. You know, I have an inner problem with my eyes. But sometimes it's not my bad vision. Sometimes it's fog that restricts me. Sometimes it's external. Our ears, the same thing, deafness. Um, A stereo illusion when you're watching a movie. (laughs) You hear the aircraft go from side to side. Nothing happened. It was an audio illusion. Anybody had vertigo? Where are you going? Which end is up? There, I just want to curl up and die. Your smell and your taste, could those betray you? Yesterday morning, my bride was eating breakfast and was wondering about whether or not she had COVID because she couldn't taste, but then she realized she was eating oatmeal. It's just the nature of the beast. Our touch will betray us. Our minds, our minds will betray us. Being drunk with wine, your mind will betray you. But sometimes the deceptions of the way things are structured around us, my mind may play tricks on me in the reality. But the most important sensor of all is my spirit in understanding what truth is. 
Before Christ, the believer is blind. Paul states this in a threefold manner, twice in Corinthians, once in Acts. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, Even if our gospel that we are preaching is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For those of us who are believers and came to Christ uh, later in life, we get that. We get that blindness. I didn't get it. Now I get it. I didn't see. Now I see. At the end of Acts, Paul's quoting Isaiah in Acts chapter 28, verse 27, when he says, This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes are closed. They have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. They're blind and deaf. They can't see. They don't get it. And sometimes as a believer, we look back at them and go, how do you not see this plainly? We forget that we were there once also. But as a Christian, we have had that aha moment where I once was blind, but now I see. And the joy that comes in our relationship now and knowledge of Christ where before there was nothing. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4, And verse 6, and he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When before you read Scripture, it meant nothing. And now you read Scripture and you go, Oh, what did I miss? Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't, you don't get it. You're not going to get it. You're not going to see. You will have, you will be veiled. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They now recognize the voice. Jesus Christ standing out, come on to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And people are looking at him going, are you nuts? What's wrong with you? And they're going on and other people are going, oh yes, I am. And they come. But even, a, even believers, even saints, we risk being deceived. Okay, in our spirits. Paul warns in Ephesians 4.22 for us to put off your old self. Keep putting it off which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. They're going to lie to you. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But you exhort one another, church, encourage one another, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of, of sin. Sin and our own sinful ways will attempt to confuse and distort our, perce- our perceptions of the truth. 
So we see in this the importance of God's word in remaining anchored in and to the truth. Back to John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Abide, dwell, soak. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Francis Schaeffer wrote in the middle of the 20th century, what is the final screen of truth? The answer can only be the existence of God and who He is. Therefore, Christian truth is that which is in relationship to what exists and ultimately to the God who exists. And true spirituality consists of being in the correct relationship to the God who is there. Well, how do I do that? It is through the communicated word of God to us that we might know truth truly. Schaefer continues, God has given his answers in the Bible. The Bible that is true when it speaks of history and of the cosmos as well when it speaks of religious things. And it therefore gives truth concerning all reality. It should come as no surprise to us then that Satan's most vicious attacks today are at the point of the truthfulness and the importance of God's word for the church and for all of humanity. But that will follow in this sermon series in the months to come. So with that foundation of truth, let's turn to 2 John here. And we're going to look at three whole verses in this chapter. And it's really just the greeting. A couple of housekeeping things on the epistles. The epistles are typically set up, you know, it's a letter. The, the to whom, or the from whom and the to whom is, comes right off the bat. Who wrote this thing and who are we writing it to? Sometimes you'll get some intention in there. So it starts with a greeting, then there's a blessing, then you get to the body of the letter, which in some of Paul's letters is pretty substantial, but here in John's letter it's itty bitty, and at the end there is often a final greeting. So who's involved in this letter? Starting in verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children. The elder. Well, in, in this letter, Ty... <laughs> Ty read the whole thing for us here. Uh, John's name isn't to be found anywhere. However, when you compare 2 John with 1 John, you go, there are a lot of commonalities in how things are spoken. And if you compare 1 John with the Gospel of John, one theologian notes that there are over 51 parallels between that letter and that Gospel. And if you read 1 John and 2 John, the similarities are stark. And so we believe with confidence that these were written by the same guy. You get to 3 John and it also starts out with the elder. John at this time, it is believed, was, he wrote this at about 90 A.D. You know, Christ was crucified about 30 A.D. That's 60 years. John was younger one of the youngest of the disciples, the brother of James. 
So if he was about 20 at that time, he would be upwards of 80 now. And so elder would fit as far as his age is concerned, but also as an authority within the church. All references to this letter amongst the early church fathers who wrote after the apostles all died off all point to these letters being written by John. To whom is he writing? To the elect lady. Okay, That is either a real lady or it's a metaphor. It seems unlikely that it's a real lady in that he doesn't use her name. To the elect lady, so she is a believer, a Christian, speaking to Christians. And if you look down into the end of the letter, the last verse says, The children of your elect sister greet you. We use the phrase today, our sister church, for churches that are in close proximity or have broken off. Uh, and started another church. You'll refer to a similar church as a sister church. So it is believed largely that this epistle, this letter, is going out to a church and her children, the believers within the church. What is his purpose? That will come in the coming sermons. Essentially, it's twofold, commending and exhorting the church in truth and warning them against being deceived. But within this brief introduction here, we see the power of truth as it comes out amongst Christians. The importance of truth comes out in three different ways. Let me read the first two verses again. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us, forever. Paul says, or excuse me, John says, whom I love in truth. What does it mean, whom I love in truth? Well, it can mean whom I love in truth. I'm telling you the truth. Scout's honor. Scout's honor. In all honesty, could mean that. But we already alluded to, we already looked at where Jesus Christ declares himself to be the truth. Whom I love in truth. Whom I love in Christ. What is this love? It is more than an affection. Yes, it is an affection. But it goes beyond that. To love somebody in Christ is to love somebody as Christ loves. Christ who wants the best. Christ who wants redemption. Christ who wants holiness. Christ who wants purity for them. Christ who wants them to go out and shine a light of the gospel all around. Whom I love in truth. To these, John writes, to these whom I love in truth. As the saint abides in Christ, the love of Christ will overflow to others. As I'm anchored to Christ, as I love Him and I love the truth, I begin to love in truth. I love with a sincerity. It is not a mask. It's not false. It's not like, I'd really rather not be here. No, I'd rather be here. I'd rather be in your life. And so we 
love the saints in proper orientation to our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just John who loves in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. So John's writing a letter, likely writing a letter from another church, involved in another church. And so all those with him, your elect sister, greet you. All those love you in truth as well. This is a precious relationship that exists within the body united by the Holy Spirit that we love one another that we serve one another that we minister our gifts to one another each one indwelt by the Holy Spirit as the Spirit continues to do His good work in you He in you is convicting He in you is sanctifying and pointing and leading and enabling And you are grafted into this body, not for yourself. Yes, for you, but for others as well. You are not an island unto yourself. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. United under the truth as the head. We, as the body of Christ, love one another in truth. John concludes in verse 2 and says, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So he says, I love in truth because of the truth that abides in us. Because of the truth that dwells in me. Again, think of The truth as described already. The truth, Jesus Christ. The truth, the word of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The comforter I will send you. Is he going to take his spirit from you? No. The truth indwells the believer. God indwells the believer. John says, it abides in us and will be with us forever. This is why Paul can say with absolute certainty that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, at the day of Jesus Christ. Not you, Him. He will complete the work that He has begun in you. It, is, it isn't merely that He began a good work in you and then went, well, good luck. He didn't begin a good work and step away. No, He is with you each step of the way with us forever for today's and tomorrow's in joys and in sorrows when we see our children born and when we see a loved one breathe their last on that day he will usher us into glory 
And so the consequence of this truth, this power of the truth in the church takes us to the blessing that he gives in verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. It's a trifecta of blessing in our relationship with God. And typically these blessings you'll see grace, mercy, and peace to you. But John says, will be with us. And that's really what Paul means too when he says grace to you, it's already with him. I'm sending God's grace to you, but it is with us here. These blessings come from the hand of God, sweet that they are grace. God's unmerited favor. He is not going to pull the rug out from underneath you. You are his adopted child. One of my favorite verses, and a lot of times you'll hear me as I am praying here corporately with the church. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Not only is grace an unmerited favor, you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, but it's an empowering favor from God. It is by grace that we are saved and it is by grace that we go on being saved. In that verse in Hebrews 4.16, we see the second aspect of this sweet blessing in our relationship with God and that is mercy. We talked about this in adult Sunday school class today about God's tender heart for his children, his creatures. Yes, for all people, God has a tender heart. But how much more for those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb? Saint, God is for you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul tells the Galatian church, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul's saying. He's personalizing it. He loved me. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but he loves you. And he gave himself for you. With that comes the third blessing, and that is peace. Man, don't, don't look outside these doors. Don't look for peace. Don't look for tranquility from the world. You're not going to find it. We know the tranquility and peace and the certainty of being in the sovereign hand of God. Twice on the night before Jesus was executed, he says a similar thing to his disciples. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He goes on two chapters later in case they missed it the first time. In 1633, he said, Jesus says, 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The world will crush you. Christ gives you his peace. He says, not I will give you. He says, I have given you. My peace I give to you. Saint, these are from God. These blessings are from God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, never to be taken away. They are anchored in the, inter- in the eternal and unchanging Father. They are anchored in the eternal and unchanging Son. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. Even that language implies equality in the Godhead. These promises are given grace and peace will be with us in truth and in love. You almost cannot untie truth and love in the New Testament. That is why it is so imperative when Christians go out and speak to others that we are uncompromising in the truth and we do it with great and lavish grace and love toward a lost and dying world. Some of you when you were a child or with your children, may have taken a needle and rubbed it against a magnet and then floated it on water and watched it orient itself to magnetic north. What happened to the needle? It became magnetized by the magnet. The magnet magnetized the pin. And it's a pretty weak magnetic cycle going through the pin at that time. But the more the pin stays in proximity to that magnet, the more the pin is rubbed on the magnet, the stronger the magnetic attraction in the pin will be. The more properly oriented to north the pin will be. Saints, we are unmagnetized pins. When we are lost. When we come to know Christ as Savior. Our pin receives a magnetic charge. And we are now oriented to magnetic north. But the world is going to beset you. The world is going to continue to attack you. And this is why it is so imperative. That as believers we abide in the truth. This is why John anchors so heavily at the start of his letter with the import and weight of truth. God's intention is not merely that we be aligned with the truth, but that we be like the truth. Paul tells the church at Rome after the ver- at Romans 8:28, you know, all things work together for good, but a lot of times we don't go on from there. Romans 8:29 says For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's us. God's intention is for you to be conformed to the image of his son. 
to be conformed to the truth. Saints, let us hunger for the truth. Let us cling to the truth, to Jesus and his word. Let the truth dwell in us richly that we might exhort one another with joy and thankfulness in our hearts as we look forward to one day seeing the truth face to face. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for opening our eyes to the truth. Oh God, that we might hear your voice. Oh, that we might be transformed by your word in our life. Father, there may be some even in this room who really have no appetite for you have no appetite for your word. And so even now I beg that you would work on these folks, that you would open their eyes and ears, that they might see and rejoice and delight in your word, that they might find you to be good, that they might know eternal life. Father, for my brothers and sisters, for myself, as we go from this place today, that we would be people who stand firm. That we would not be compromising to the culture. That we would not be compromising to the suggestions and the whispers of this world. But that we would know that your word is good and true for us. Strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen.